few weeks ago we started a new series of studies in the book of Jeremiah. We just completed the book of Isaiah over a good long period of time. Here we go again with all the sound effects. I'll try not to do much to create them. But we're going to complete uh, Jeremiah chapter 1 this evening. So our text is found in verses 11 through 15. Let me read them and then we'll pray and get right into our study this evening. Jeremiah 1 verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. And then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. And the word of the Lord came to me the second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot, and it is facing away from the north. And then the Lord said to me, Out of the north, calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord. They shall come, and each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls all around, and against all the cities of Judah." Shall we pray? Father, this evening we pray for the blessing and anointing of your Holy Spirit to be upon us, among us, and in us, that we, Lord, may truly come to rightly divide your word, that we may come to understand it as you would have us to understand it, to know it, and to grow in its wisdom and its knowledge. I pray that, Lord, you will help us to understand this in light of the days in which we live, that we may see clearly where the application of all of these things lie with us and in our lives as we look for the day of Jesus Christ and as we look to that day to come to bring the consummation of all your creation and your kingdom. And we thank you, Father, for the privilege of knowing and growing and studying your word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. When studying the books of the Old Testament prophets, there is a pattern that is woven throughout their writings that essentially ties them all together into one comprehensive and cohesive message to Israel and to Judah, to really all of Israel, but uh, especially in those times when the nation itself was divided into those two parts, Israel and Judah. And, And three truths are intertwined in this pattern that we see in the Old Testament prophets. The first thing that we see is 
but past iniquity. Again, through all the prophets, past iniquity is mentioned. Past iniquity is brought up. Past sin. For the nation as a whole had disobeyed God's laws. Secondly, we see present responsibility. For the people needed desperately to repent before God or judgment would be sent. And thirdly, there would be this future expectation and hope. Again, through all the Old Testament prophets, these three things are woven and intertwined. Future expectation and hope for the Lord promised to one day come and establish His glorious kingdom. As you read the prophets, you begin to see these three things, and these three truths. Now, the calling Jeremiah received from the Lord was not a joyous message. It wasn't a joyous message of deliverance to announce. But instead, it was a heartbreaking, a heart-rending, a disastrous message of judgment to pronounce upon His very own people. We will discover that the message Jeremiah is called to preach is so perilous and dangerous that the people who hear it consider the prophet to be a traitor. They would misunderstand him. They would persecute him, arrest him, and incarcerate him. More than once his life was in danger. And because of all this, there was certainly a need for some confirmation for this calling. Lord, if I'm going to do all of this, you're going to need to confirm this call upon my life. Most of us would rather have a a calling that would seem to be very prosperous, very abundant in its reaping. Most of us would want to have a, a calling that is relatively safe and encouraging. Sometimes God calls to pronounce His judgment. And people don't like to hear that. where we are in our text this evening. We've already read the calling and studied the calling that God had given to Jeremiah even before he was formed in his mother's womb. God knew. God had already planned this out. And he sanctified and set apart and ordained Jeremiah as a prophet to the nations. Not just to Judah, but to all the nations of his time. And the Lord would confirm His calling to Jeremiah now by giving him two visions. The first focus on the nature of the message Jeremiah would deliver. The second vision would point out the content of that message. The first vision is in verses 11 and 12. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree or literally I see a rod of an almond tree and the Lord said to me you have seen well 
for I am ready to perform my word. Now, one thing that we need to review and to remember here is the commission Jeremiah was given as he was set over the nations and the kingdoms. We looked at this last time, verses 9 and 10. Then the Lord put, it, put forth His hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. I want you to notice the contrast. To root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down. But to build and to plant as well. So as we learned last time, he was to tell of judgment and desolation, of overturning and destruction. And as great as God's vengeance must be, it would not be judgment without mercy. For we see in the building and planting restoration and recovery, blessing and renewal was also to be in Jeremiah's message to his people. And so God promises Jeremiah in verses 11 and 12 that his word would be fulfilled. That's the promise. That his word would be fulfilled. The vision of the branch of the almond tree, of the rod of the almond tree had a twofold meaning for Jeremiah. First of all, the very name itself of that almond tree was to be a play on words. The Hebrew word for almond tree is saked, while the word for watch or awake in Hebrew is soked. So there's a play on words in the Hebrew uh, language here in this, in this particular verse. And in the Middle East, the almond tree, and the reason why it's where it is and, and the reason why we're giving it here is because the almond tree blossoms in January. In fact, it is the first tree to blossom. And, and it's the first to give indication that spring is near. So they call it the awakening tree. It's awakening people to the fact that spring is coming. And so when all seems dis, uh, dormant and, and inactive, when everything around us seems sleeping and resting, as most winters can be, no matter where you live, whether you have a lot of snow or not. Winters are just that way. The trees, for the most part, are dead. Your plants are dead. Things are just kind of in that dormant state. But when all seems that way, spiritually speaking, God is awake. God is watching, ready for His moment to fulfill His Word. God is watching. God is awake ready for his moment to fulfill his word. That's essentially what he's saying here. But secondly, since the almond tree is synonymous with life and fruit, there is a further connection. And that connection is with Aaron's rod in number 17. So in your Bibles, turn to number 17 and look at verse 8. Now just a little background here. The people have been murmuring and complaining about Moses and Aaron and about their leadership of the people. And God gets angry. God is ready to destroy His own people. Moses has to step in, you know, to intercede. But God says, I'm, I'm, I want the tribes to come 
with 12 rods of almond trees. The rods would be actually just sticks, dead sticks. They would take them into the tabernacle. And they were labels so that they would know from which tribe they were. And Aaron represented the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. And when the rod was brought out, the one significant rod was brought out. Well, let's read about it. Numbers 17.8 It came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds, had produced blossoms, and yielded ripe almonds. It, it, it didn't just have a little bud on it, it had many buds, it produced blossoms out of the bud, and even the fruit was there. Ripe almonds. How many of you like almonds? Oh, they're good. Almonds are good. Especially smokehouse. I like the smokehouse. That was a good. I don't think these were smokehouse. Well, they could have been if they were, you know. Well, never mind. I don't want to go into that. But the rod itself was a symbol of God's power and authority. Listen, it was a symbol of God's power and authority. And by giving life to the rod, the Lord was showing that his authority was being given to Aaron in order to serve the people as priest and minister of his people. But it was also a type of resurrection. It was also a type of Christ's resurrection in that the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ rests upon the fact of His resurrection. So there's a connection with the priesthood here. Think of what it says in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and gone, going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this he has required us for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. But notice verse 4, No man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So as Aaron was called by God, signified by the rod that was Aaron's, that had produced forth buds and blossoms and fruit or almonds, so we see that connection then as well with Jeremiah in seeing this particular branch of the almond tree and the significance of the fact that he is being called to have that power and authority. So what's being confirmed here is God's power and authority in the ministry that God has given to Jeremiah. But let's continue on with this thought that deals with Jesus as being uh, a part of this as well. Because in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28, it says also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, speaking of Jesus Christ, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest 
was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. So now we see a connection from Jeremiah back to Aaron coming through as well to Jesus. And so with Jeremiah, who by the way was also a priest, to see the rod of an almond tree also spoke of the authority God had given him for his own ministry and mission, as well as the assurance that God's word would indeed come to pass. Now, the word to the prophet Habakkuk a few years after this, and remember I mentioned earlier in our first study of Jeremiah 1, that Habakkuk the prophet was a contemporary of Jeremiah. But the word to the prophet Habakkuk a few years after this is equally important in light of God's fulfillment. Habakkuk 2 verse 3 says, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. So you think about the, the visions given to Jeremiah, and this pertains to that in the sense that what God says is going to come to pass is going to come to pass. You've got to wait for it, but when you wait for it, eventually it will happen. Now Paul in Hebrews would also quote this verse, but change the pronoun. I want you to notice that in Hebrews 10 verses 35 to 38, Paul says, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And notice, he quotes here from Habakkuk, For yet a little while, and notice, he says, And he who is coming will come. Not it, but he. He who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. Now that's Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So tying this all together, that it is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who will bring that blessing predicted by the prophets for Israel and the whole earth. And we now wait for this same blessed person to return with our full blessing in heaven. So it isn't just that uh, certain uh, prophecies are going to come to pass near fulfillment in Jeremiah's time, later on in, in, in the the life of uh, Israel and Judah, and then eventually, you know, um, with more modern Israel, because all of these particular prophecies will always point to a farther fulfillment. It is bringing Jesus Christ into the mix. It is bringing Jesus Christ into the picture because of the branch of the almond tree. So there is that connection. First of all, it was to assure Jeremiah that God's promise would be kept that his word will be fulfilled. But also the very fact that God, that God would have that, uh, uh, would give that power and authority to Jeremiah. And so that he would know eventually life from death being a type of Jesus Christ in the fulfillment 
of the prophecies. So now the second confirming vision, that's the first vision. The second confirming vision that God gave to Jeremiah was that of a boiling pot. Notice verse 13. And the word of the Lord came to me the second time saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot. And it is facing away from the north, which means it's facing south. I'm just trying to see if you guys are with me. It is awake, everybody. If it's pointing away from north, it's pointing south. All right. So until the appearing of Christ, to fill the earth with the knowledge of God's glory, there is this seething, boiling pot tilting dangerously from the north. You see the picture? Tilting from the north, which signifies the old invasion route of Assyria and soon to be that of Babylon. If you remember in our study of the book of Isaiah, how we talked about the Assyrians who were coming from the north and actually they swung this big swing from from the east and they came around and then just turned south right over Israel and into Israel. Well, this would be the same route that eventually Babylon itself would take. As a matter of fact, let's read on in verses 14 through 16 of our text. It says, And the Lord said to me, Out of the north calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. Speaking of the land of Israel. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord. They shall come and each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness, speaking of the wickedness of Judah, because they have forsaken me, burned incense to other gods, and worship the work of their own hands. Now, I've mentioned this before, but when the prophet began his ministry, when Jeremiah began his ministry, Assyria was still the dominant power in the Near East. Not Babylon. Assyria. It is interesting that many of the political experts in Jeremiah's time thought Jeremiah was foolish to worry about Babylon in the north. Now, how many of our political experts today, or in our time, how many of them were worried about Iran a few years ago? Not many. How many are worried about Iran now? Many. And they should, especially with that nut job who's the president of that country. And by the way, don't think that his threats to have nuclear power are just that, threats. The minute he can get hold of the kind of power that can destroy Israel and the United States, he will do it. This is just a little sidebar here. But the more research you do about this person named Ahmadinejad, you have to come to realize that he truly believes himself to be the forerunner of the Islamic Messiah. 
the Mahdi. And he believes that he is called to bring about this tremendous change in the world. There are a lot of people going around these days writing books about atheism and not wanting to believe in God. And these are just choices they're making and they're coming from a premise that doesn't really hold up to a lot, you know, hold, hold water. If you really do your homework, you realize they, they're just angry at God. They call themselves atheists, but that's a lie. They're just angry at God and angry at God's people and angry at God's Savior, Jesus Christ. They don't look at what's going on in the world to show us that everything that the Bible teaches about the end times is happening, is true, and will happen just as God says. The reason why we study God's Word the way we do and do our best to rightly divide it in light of the current things that are happening today is because, in fact, all of these things can be documented in the Scriptures to be said to be happening. We talked about it a lot. We've offered, folks, we offer every time that, that we can even do a webcast of prophecy conferences from Calvary Chapel and Costa Mesa or wherever. We offer it or videos and tapes to say, listen, the day is at hand. We need to be ready because the things that are happening in the world are happening not just by circumstance. They're happening because God said they would happen. But it's a signal. It's, it's, it's a sign. It's telling us, you know what? Jesus is coming back, like he said, and we need to be ready for his return. So think about this. Jeremiah had his own political experts around him saying, you know, you know you're, you're really off base. You know, if they had a CNN or Fox in those days, they would have just had him on and try to cut him up into little pieces. But he would hold his guns he says he would say well listen you say that it's not going to happen that Babylon's you know Babylon's just a little country but you know it's developing and eventually because my source is telling me that they will destroy Assyria or they will overpower Assyria and they'll be the power to deal with So with all that in mind, with Jeremiah, the people of Judah would live to see the downfall of Assyria and the downfall of Egypt, actually the weakening of Egypt. You know, they had at one time wanted an alliance with Egypt just to protect themselves from the Assyrians. It didn't work. And God said it wouldn't. So it was the Babylonians that, that uh, defeated the Assyrians. And rose to power. That's the reason why our text says all the families of the kingdoms of the north. They overpower. They rule everyone in those areas. Not, not, not just Babylonia. They swept them up. Remember this. There was the Syrians and the Babylonians and the Medes and then the Persians, you see. And by the way, Persia. Where's that? Iran. That's for later. Don't worry about that now. So all along, what is being said? God was what? Right. God was right. 
The thrones of the Babylonians were indeed set at the gate of Jerusalem. Turn all the way down to uh, Jeremiah 39. Go all the way to Jeremiah 39. Now we're not skipping everything in between. We're just going to prove what, what uh, this passage says here in Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah 39 verses 1 to 3 says, In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, we've already mentioned Zedekiah in, in our, in our uh, introduction to the book of Jeremiah. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. Notice, in the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the city was penetrated. Then all the princes of the king of Babylon came in and did what? They sat in the middle gate. Nergal's Sharazer, Samgar Nebo, Sarsechim, I wish they had easier names to pronounce, Sarsechim, Rabsaris, Nergal Sarazer, Rabmag, I really like that one, Rabmag, with the rest of the princes of the king of Babylon. Listen, it says exactly what, what happened. They sat in the middle gate. We are told here in the prophecy that was to be given to the people that they would come and set their thrones at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. And it happened. And the holy city would eventually be destroyed. We talked a lot about that in our study of the book of Isaiah. But the very catalyst for this was not eastern nations in conflict with each other for supremacy and with Israel and Judah, who by this time had already failed to trust in the Lord and to seek His help. It was the very will of God Himself. Listen to me. It was the will of God Himself and the fact that God is in control of the nations of the world for the accomplishing of His own purposes. And the reason was clear. There was a reason for this. There was a reason for God to extend His control out for people to see what He was doing to His own people. It is verse 16 of our text in Jeremiah 1. I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness. Whose wickedness? Judah's wickedness. The wickedness of God's own people, Judah, because they have forsaken me, burned incense to other gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands. Now, the last couple of weeks I've been stating that even though there were reforms from Josiah the king, much of what was taking place in the temple was really just lip service. Unfortunately, that's the way it is in the church today a lot, in, in a lot of cases lip service but think about this this was God's land these were God's people and he's calling them speaking of the Babylonians he's calling them to engulf and to judge his own people and all because they forsook the one true God and worshipped the gods they made with their hands. And once again, we can go back to the fact that their worship, in their, uh, their worship of God in the temple was for all intents and purposes merely lip service. They were going through the motions while all along in the privacy of their own hearts and homes or maybe even out in the open hills and groves. The people were claiming devotion to gods made by human hands. 
First of all, the, is, the issue of lip service was, uh, was already brought, up to us, uh, brought out to us in Isaiah 29 verse 13. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. You know, Paul had to tell the Galatian churches that, the, that he was not going to fall to the commandments of men. He was not a man-pleaser, but, God, but a God-pleaser. So he was going to worship God and he was going to serve God, but he wasn't going to fall into this thing of, of, of fearing men. But notice, they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far. And, and I think that, that should sadden every believer in Jesus Christ, every true believer in Christ, should be saddened. that around us today, and I hope not today, I hope every one of you has a heart that seeks after God, that desires God, that desires everything that God has for us, in wisdom and in truth and spirit, and in gifts in whatever way, but there can be just those who are just here listening, paying some lip service to God, and yet your heart is far from this place. Let it not be so. They would go into the temple, they would pay their tithe, they would do whatever they would do in, in, in their worship of, of, of God, and then go home and pull out their idols and begin to serve and worship them. But what were these idols? David in Psalm 115 verses 4 through 8 says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Now notice verse 8, Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. People who construct idols and those who trust in them become like them. How is that? How do they become like them? What is it that they become when they become like their idols? Powerless before the Lord. Powerless before God. Why? Because idols can't do anything. They're either gold or silver. They could be precious stones. They could even be wood, carved, stone carved, whatever it is, nicely polished, hydraulics. Could be just about anything, huh? What we put in our homes. It takes all of our attention more than God. And then today, not just in the fact of idols, but today false prophets are flourishing in shallow and popular ministries, much as in, the, in those days and times, and, and that they promise peace without ever calling for repentance and a, and a true change of heart. I just happened to turn on the TV today to see what was playing this morning, you know. I, 
I always check through the Christian stations. I have direct TV and there's a, a few Christian channels on there, supposed Christian channels, but you know, I'll, I'll flip through there and watch a few things and I, I see people preaching. And, you know, it, it just saddens me so much. When all their focus, it just seems like every time you click the channel, it's the same. It's almost practically the same message. What you should get from God, what you should have from God, what you should demand from God, what, you know, what you should ask. You know, hey, he told us we could ask, you could have whatever you want. The focus keeps coming back to you, 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 you. Where's the focus? On Him. Some people treat Him as the spiritual bellhop of the universe. When He's God Almighty, who everyone should bow themselves before in worship and in praise and thanksgiving and in gratitude to the one who isn't just high and lifted up but has actually come to us become like us to take on himself our sins to take on himself our iniquity but they will promise you peace without repentance. Have you ever read the letters of Paul when he writes and he says, Grace and peace be to you? When he starts that way, you know what he's telling us? You can't have the peace of God without the grace of God. To get the grace of God, we need to repent of our sins. We need to know the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. But it's popular today. Let's not go down that road. We might offend somebody. Good, offend me, please. Because I'd rather be offended and go to heaven. And I'd rather offend people that will eventually realize they're sinners and they need salvation in Christ. You know, Jeremiah is going to deal with this. Jeremiah 5 verses 11 through 13 says, For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, says the Lord. They've lied about the Lord and said, It is not He. Oh, neither will evil come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. And the prophets become wind, for the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. In Jeremiah 8, verses 11 and 12, he says, For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly. You know what it means? They have healed the hurt of my daughter, uh, of the daughter of my people superficially. Just put a band-aid or whatever, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were, were, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not all, at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall in the time of their punishment. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. Jeremiah 14, verses 13 through 15. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. 
Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, whom I did not send, and who say, Sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine those prophets shall be consumed. One great sign of a people who turn from worshiping the one true God is the exploitation of of one another. The rich oppress the poor, and the courts do not defend the rights of the oppressed. And yet the rich rulers and the corrupt judges would still go to the temple faithfully and pretend devotion to the Lord God. And this is what God was about to judge. And so with all this in mind, consider the message that Jeremiah is now to proclaim to this sinful and adulterous generation. And do so directly to their faces. Notice verse 17 of our text, Jeremiah 1. Therefore prepare yourself and arise. And speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city, and an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land. Against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, and against the people of the land. They will fight against you, Jeremiah. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. In verse 17, the King James Version, the Lord is saying to Jeremiah, Gird up your loins and arise. Gird up your loins and arise. We don't speak like that anymore. That's a good thing. Gird up your loins and arise. You know what he means? Get dressed and get ready for action. Tighten your belt. Roll up your sleeves. Get ready. In other words, in view of what is to take place and in view of the Lord's return, Jeremiah was to pull his mind and heart together with the right attitude, with the right heart attitude. He must not be afraid of the people who would be in opposition against him because God would defend him. Even when surrounded by his enemies, Jeremiah would become a fortified city, an iron pillar, bronze walls. There's some sense in understanding that those particular uh, materials, iron, bronze, bronze especially is a a type of, of judgment. So he having to pronounce judgment, an iron pillar, a pillar that is not going to be moved. But a stronghold, think about this, a stronghold in the day of trouble. I love Nahum chapter 1 verse 7. A lot of people consider Nahum to be an obscure book, but it is the Word of God. It is in the Scriptures. Nahum 1 7 says the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who trust in Him. Psalm 18, verse 2, it says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. See, understand one thing, that when God tells him he's going to be a fortified city, iron pillar and bronze walls, who's really going to be that for him? Where is he going to get the strength to be those things if it isn't from God himself? And when eventually you find out that God has given you this, you realize that all those things is God Himself in you and with you to protect you. 
Psalm 50 verse 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Psalm 59 verse 16. I love this because of just the response that we are to give to God. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. I will sing of your power. I will sing of your mercy. God is our defense. God is our refuge. Warren Wiersbe has stated in the battle for truth, one with God is a majority. I like that. In the battle for truth, one with God is a majority. And the choice that Jeremiah made was to accept God's call in spite of the demands and the difficulties of the time. And didn't Jeremiah already know his deficiencies? Didn't he already know his insufficiencies? But he also knew that the Lord was greater and would enable him to fulfill the task. Paul understood what it meant to be enabled by God. We need to understand what it means to be enabled by God to do the things that God has called us to do in this life until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verses 12 through 14, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me. Paul is clear when he says he's enabled me. He's equipped me. He's given me everything that I need to do the task that God has given me. He has enabled me because He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. But Paul says one other thing that I think all of us know this, but we need to realize it in the context of what he says. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, some people like that verse, only from, that verse only from the standpoint of what it can give us. Paul uses it in the purpose of his whole life. I learned to be abased and I've learned to abound. I've gone through lack and I've gone through having. So in all things, whether I'm, ab- I'm abounding or whether I'm ab- being abased or, or even persecuted for, for my stand for Christ, in all these things, I am strengthened and I can do them. I can get through them because of Christ who strengthens me. So don't limit the verse by saying, well, I can do whatever I can, you know, like I'm rich and powerful and strong because of God, you know. Well, I'm weak too, and I can do that because of God. And Jeremiah had already said, I'm just a youth. just a young man. I said, it doesn't matter. I'll be your strength. I'll give you my words. I'll give you power and authority. You'll have to obey me. Jeremiah was confident he was giving out the very words of God. And he would do so by doing in his time what Jesus would later exhort his disciples to do. And I believe every prophet of the Old Testament would do this, whether it's stated or not, 
Every prophet would do this. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 24 and following. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny, die, and then follow. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, that's death. Follow me, that's life. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. In other words, whoever desires to keep his life in this world will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will will come in the glory of his Father and with his angels. And then he, re- he will reward each according to his works. The Son of Man will come. I believe that message was in that rod, in that branch of the almond tree. Life from death. I believe that was the message that Jeremiah humbled himself to preach. A prophet worthy of his salt was one who had denied himself to speak only what God would give him to speak. In effect, he would die to himself and he would speak only for God. The prophets of Jeremiah will have to deal with speak only for themselves. And it's sad to say that there are many prophets like that today. But who will speak? Who will go? Who will stand for God? For Christ? For the Word of God? Can we say with Isaiah here am I send me let's pray